0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your
1: network. Today on Government Matters, cyber breaches across government mean new cyber protections. Congressman Jerry Connolly lists what agencies will do and how he'll measure success. Ransomware attacks hit the supply chain in the private sector. Could government be next? the leader of CISA at DHS, Brandon Wales, on stopping the bad guys. And the number one story of the week, the White House asks for thousands more federal employees and more money for the Office of Personnel Management. Two Human Capital veterans explain what it means. Government Matters starts right now. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The new White House budget request includes huge amounts of money for cybersecurity and modernizing legacy government systems to make them easier to secure. Some of that money would go to CISA and other organizations inside the government that manage information security. Congressman Jerry Connolly is a senior member of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. He's chairman of the subcommittee, On government operations. Mr. Chairman, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Great to be with you. One of the organizations that you have worked on in in your time in Congress is FedRAMP. What's your uh, view of the importance of FedRAMP in light of some of the high-profile cyber incidents that we've seen in government and outside of government?
2: I see FedRAMP as uh, a key part of the architecture for modernizing IT in the federal government. And IT modernization is directly related to cyber protection. Um, Old clunky systems that can't be encrypted or encrypted easily are vulnerable. Um, And so modernizing and moving to the cloud, I think are important components in protecting federal assets. And FedRAMP is the program within the federal government that certifies private sector companies that want to do business with the federal government in providing cloud services. Uh, So I think it's very important. And I think it's important to codify it in law Right now, it exists solely at the sufferance of the executive branch. So it could easily go away tomorrow. Um, And codifying it in law, uh, you know, institutionalizes the program and also gives proper oversight.
1: Beyond the codification of the program, Congressman, how would you like to see FedRAMP evolve as the threat landscape evolves?
2: So, you know, I've got a bill uh, that would codify FedRAMP, but would do other things as well, in fact, four things. Um, The FedRAMP bill that has passed the House three times and include, by the way, was the first bill to be passed by this Congress on the floor of the House uh, in early January, uh, which I'm proud of. Uh, It A, establishes a presumption of adequacy for all security assessments of cloud products that have already received FedRAMP authorization. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you apply to a new agency. Secondly, it requires FedRAMP Program Management Office and Joint Authorization Board, the JAB, to establish metrics that can be tracked to ensure proper implementation of FedRAMP. It authorizes $20 million a year toward the program to increase the capacity of FedRAMP uh, and the Joint Authorization Board to review security assessments and increase the number of FedRAMP authorized products each year. And finally, it establishes a federal secure cloud advisory committee to ensure dialogue between the FedRAMP stakeholders, all of which have a cyber aspect to them.
1: I, as I listen between the lines of your description of that legislation, I don't hear anything that indicates an objection to the way that FedRAMP is working now. Sounds like you want to give them more money to scale it, which indicates a measure of success. Am I reading well, too I think, much you into your that, words?
2: Well, that the presumption of adequacy standard we're introducing in the law is designed to speed up the review and approval process and to cut back on the costs. So FedRAMP originally was seen as something that could kind of cut through red tape and get you certified in six months, maybe at a cost of a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, Instead, FedRAMP kind of evolved over time to multi-year efforts of application, multiple applications required, reinventing the wheel and costing companies millions of dollars. So we want to go back to the original intent of FedRAMP. And we think that standard of adequacy, uh, presumption of adequacy really gets at trying to make it more efficient
1: so the but it doesn't sound like the outcomes are dissatisfactory it's just the process by which the fed process reaches those outcomes that's dissatisfactory is that a fair yeah, read on my I, part
2: i would say improvements have been made and uh in good faith and we're getting better feedback from the private sector but it's still not where we want it to be and again codifying it in law putting this presumption of adequacy standard in the law I think really helps speed things up and uh, gives everybody a standard that they can measure themselves against.
1: Uh, Separately on cyber uh, from FedRAMP, sir, uh, across the agencies, if you ask individuals, especially in the chief information officer's office, whether they need more reporting about cybersecurity, they would all say no. Given the incidents that we've seen over the last uh, several months, is there more reporting that agencies should prepare for regarding cyber or is it maybe time to rethink that model?
2: From my point of view, if we go back to Fatara and the Fatara scorecard, the modernization of IT systems in the federal government is directly linked to cyber. You know, cyber is going to be as good as the IT systems you've got in place. Um, Can they be encrypted? Are you using the most recent and comprehensive encryption you can? Um, are you Do you have monitoring systems? Do you have early warning systems? Do you have detection systems? Do you even have offensive capability in some cases uh, to redirect, misdirect uh, the would-be hacker uh, and or cause them some trouble? Um, and so uh, the IT modernization systems we have in place really are critical and integral to the whole cyber effort. But yes, I believe that in addition to the reporting requirements Fatara has in seven different broad categories, um, I believe that more accountability with respect to how cyber secure are you uh, needs to be required of our CIOs.
1: We have about thirty seconds left, Jerry. Uh, given your mention of Fatara, how does the what's your vision for what cyber could look like on the Fatara scorecard and how it would be measured and graded?
2: You know, we haven't entirely fleshed that out. But there's no question with recent developments, both in the private sector and the public sector, uh, that we're highly vulnerable. There are malign actors at work, and we need to protect ourselves and the assets of the federal government on behalf of the American people. So that's got to be a priority as we move forward.
1: Congressman Connolly, thanks very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Francis. Thank you so much. Coming next, cyber adversaries turn up the heat on government defenses. Straight ahead on Government Matters, preventing a colonial pipeline problem for the feds. The leader of CISA is next. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. Agencies have a long list of deadlines to meet to comply with President Biden's executive order on cybersecurity. One of the goals of the order is to prevent attacks on the federal government, like the Colonial Pipeline attack and the JBS attack. Brandon Wales is acting director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Brandon, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What do you make of the incidents that we're seeing with increasing uh increasing vigor and increasing cadence in the private sector and against the federal government brandon
3: well first let me thank you for for having me on i think it's great to 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 touch base with your audience and talk about the important work we're doing here Uh, but the issue that you're starting with is is the right one Um, the the aggressiveness the pace the scale the scope of the attacks that this country is facing in cyberspace Um, are significant uh, and it should be a wake up call for government leaders and private sector leaders alike. Uh, We have a a lot of work to do to ensure that our cybersecurity posture uh, is appropriately calibrated, is appropriately strong uh, given the pace and the severity of the threat we're facing. Uh, And that is in part why our agency, why the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency or CISA was created by Congress to be that focal point to help the government and the private sector enhance their security um, and improve their resilience. Uh, Against all threats and hazards.
1: Is that reposturing a dramatic uh, rethinking of the way that the government does cybersecurity or faces cyber threats? Or are these adjustments that you think we can make in in maybe uh, smaller increments?
3: No, I I think that there are certainly areas that we're going to be making small incremental improvements uh, given the, the amount of work that we have done over the past. Um, uh, half decade uh, in, to improve the the federal government's cybersecurity posture, but there's a lot of areas where we need to make really more radical transformation. Um, the our approaches to to protecting, for example, the federal networks, moving from a largely perimeter based security model uh, to an improved uh, defense in depth strategy, uh, a more focused. And um, a deliberate work with our critical infrastructure community to harden uh, those most systemically important critical infrastructure—the industrial control systems that enable uh, our way of life—that um, uh, that that work is is can't be done uh, with incremental improvements alone. We really need to make radical transformation of our cyber posture given the level of threat we're now facing.
1: What is your sense of the the level of dialogue between the private sector and organizations in government like CISA? Is that that conversation uh, becoming uh, more detailed, including more details? There was a hesitance uh, in the private sector for a long time at sharing information with the federal government.
3: So CIS has always had a strong relationship with the private sector. So much of our work hinges upon close collaboration with our partners in the public sector, like state and local governments, and with the private sector alike. Um, but more recently, we've been focusing on deeper operational collaboration, particularly with those companies have, that have the greatest insight into the into the, the networks that underpin much of the much of the internet and, and much of um, our critical infrastructure. Uh, the, the, the companies who can take action to help in partnership with the government um, stop or, or immediately um, uh, reduce the risk of, of cyber incidents from having dramatic impacts uh, and we've been focusing on using some of the new authorities provided by Congress earlier this year uh, to stand up a joint cyber planning office to to be a focal point for that kind of deep operational collaboration. Uh, we're really hopeful that it will form the, the basis for a really improved uh, partnership and collaboration in the future.
1: What do you think that looks like in its mature form uh, a year, two years, five years out, Brandon?
3: I, you know, really what I think it is, is it's the forum by which where when when the government sees potential threats and risks or when the private sector sees those, those risks beginning to manifest themselves, that there's a place where they can come together and say, how do we jointly address this um, in a unified way um, and take action using the authorities that we have, whether it's the governmental authorities inside of CISA or other federal agencies in the law enforcement community or the intelligence community um, or the private sector with their their ability to to, um, uh, impact things traversing their networks, with their ability to take action on people utilizing their services uh, potentially maliciously, and bringing that all together in one place to have those conversations and take the type of action that's going to be necessary uh, to, to the scale of the threat.
1: Uh, the Biden administration, Brandon, has proposed a big plus up for your organization. If Congress gives you that money, where will it go? What do you need that you don't have or don't have enough of now?
3: Sure, that, that's a great question. And we've this agency has benefited from really strong support from, uh, from Congress and, and the appropriators. They have uh, earlier this year provided us a $650 million plus up uh, through the COVID relief package to take really decisive action and provide a good down payment on um, the types of, of improvements to our federal cybersecurity posture that we have long needed, um, but lack the resources to do. For example, scaling up our Uh, our ability to provide hunt and incident response resources, um, improving our ability to have visibility into the activities that are happening on government networks, um, to move the government faster towards more secure, more defensible architectures uh, based upon zero trust principles. So there's a lot of that work and we're gonna need more of it in the future. And we hope that the FY22 budget uh, will be as kind to us uh, with some additional funds uh, will, will allow us to, to take some of these efforts even further. And more importantly, in our FY 22 budget, there's an initial, uh, allotment of money for a cyber response and recovery fund. Uh, this was funding. Uh, this was a program that was recommended by the, uh, cyberspace solarium commission when it released its report last year. And we think that having this fund, uh, of, of no year funds will allow the, allow CISA, and our federal interagency partners to take quicker, more decisive action when we're faced with uh, heightened threats or when we have significant um, uh, cyber incidents affecting the country. And so we're really eager to work with Congress um, on the implementation of that fund uh, and what it means for the future of the government's ability to respond to catastrophic cyber
1: incidents. Brandon, a lot more I'd like to cover. I have to have you come back. Thank you very much for your time today. Happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Coming next, the number one story of the week a hiring explosion could be coming in the federal government. Straight ahead on government matters, getting a plan ready in case Congress gives the thumbs up. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back now. The number one story of the week the Biden administration's budget request shows the White House wants to blow up hiring all across government. Human capital pros worry the hiring process that isn't working well now could make the administration's plan a lot more complicated. Jerry Buckholtz is former chief human capital officer at NASA. She's a strategic advisor at the Charles F. Bolden Group. Michael Regus is former deputy director and acting director of the Office of Personnel Management. Welcome to both of you. Jerry, I start with you. There's a fear that I'm hearing about this week about forcing a lot of money into a process doesn't really work that well, as I referenced a moment ago. What's your sense of how that could work or what would make it work?
4: I think the thing we need to remember is the process is the process. There's no bandwidth in Congress to reform civil service personnel. They have so many huge, huge problems to deal with. The process is what the process is going to be. For the next five years, I don't see any substantial legal reform coming up anytime in the new future. And that means that you have to really break down the current system and reassemble those blocks in a way that is more modern and works best for federal government agencies and their unique commissions and hiring requirements.
1: Mike, welcome. Thanks for joining the conversation today. What does OPM have to offer agencies to do what Jerry just proposed, to help them basically, sounds like she's proposing, taking the system apart on their own and put it back together again?
5: Well, thanks, Francis. Good morning, and it's uh, great to be back with you today. I think we really need to return to first principles here on the very basic question of what we're trying to get done here. Uh, More government and bigger government is not better government. Uh, I think what's needed is good leadership and focus on mission outcomes, as Jerry just mentioned. Uh, I assume no one bothered to ask federal employees themselves if this is the right course of action. Uh, As a data point, according to the most recent federal employee viewpoint survey, which just concluded just a few months ago at the end of 2020, when asked – Federal employees said, my work unit has the job-relevant knowledge and skills necessary to accomplish organizational goals. That 81.9%, 82% responded positively to that, which is actually the highest ever recorded. And when asked, they said, my agency is successful at accomplishing its mission. That was another record high at 81%. So I think we need to ask, really, what is the problem that we're trying to solve here? Because I think federal employees think that they're able to get
1: their job done today jerry what is the problem that agencies will try to solve then if the if the if congress goes along with what the administration wants and proposes bringing in a bunch of people the issue is it, it, from the perspective of the people that i've talked to over the years the issue is not the that the people don't want to work for government it's getting them through the right. system to get them into government right jerry
4: Right. That's absolutely correct. And during this period of time when things have been slower, several federal government agencies have really dug deep and modernized their tools and processes. There's a big project going on at the Department of Commerce, which has all new tools and uses AI and other techniques that are, you know, really what's going on in the private sector and what needs to happen in the federal government. So those agencies should really be able to benefit from the resources that are coming their way. Additionally, there are things that OPM could do from a regulatory perspective that would make it easier for people who want to return to federal government service to return. I think there's a large pool of people out there who would return to federal service if that was easy enough, an alumni pool. And things like the proposed giving people credit for their private sector work so they don't have to come back at the same grade level that they left. And other things like a blanket dual compensation waiver for retirees so they can earn their their retirement they earned plus earn the federal salary that they are working for, and then easier interchange agreements, easier to get and easier to use with the accepted service agencies so that people can flow in and out of the competitive civil service from those accepted service agencies. There are so many more of them now than there used to be.
1: Mike, you were nodding your head in agreement as Jerry was putting her points out there. What did you hear there that you think would be easy to implement for for OPM or for the agencies?
5: Well, I think we can point to some of the great successes in fact, what we did last year uh, at the beginning of the COVID crisis when I was acting director of OPM, we leveraged every existing authority we had to help federal agencies execute on their mission. So for example, the VA said they needed frontline doctors and nurses and other support staff to be able to respond to the pandemic, and because of the numerous flexibilities we afforded them, the VA was able to hire over 50,000 people in 2020. And now that's just an incredible uh, amount of folks and as Jerry also mentioned, you know, uh, we need, you, you know, what needs to be done is looking at the nature of work in the 21st century. So, you know, the IRS closed processing centers in Covington, Kentucky, and Fresno, California, uh, because people are not printing out, signing, and mailing in paper copies of their tax returns anymore. They're filing them electronically. So. That's not an indicator of a gutted workforce. That's just life in the 21st century. So we're using more robotic process automation and artificial intelligence to do more work. And I think those are the questions we need to look at, the nature of work, because hiring can be done if uh, you have good leadership and focus on
1: that. Michael Regis, Jerry Buchholz, thanks very much for joining the conversation today. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Francis. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, "Here's what I want. Here's what I want to. Here's where I want to go
1: over the next 10 to 15 years." Time is of the essence. It strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning. First of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well,
0: I I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still stuck on an rfp or a format that asks for older technology there are and and there are unfortunately francis a number of rfps and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff and it's it's like the the to to some extent i'm 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 advocating for timeline be damned you ought to stop stop the presses